Good morning, Mill City Church. We're so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Special thanks to Stephanie Kaihai for being willing to tell this story about how God worked in a relationship with her mom. We want to be a community that tells these kinds of stories. So if you have a story about how God's working in your everyday life, we'd love to hear it because we know uh, how God uses those stories in our lives to inspire us and to challenge us and to help us see the way that God's present in some important ways. So be sure and share your stories with us. Would you say a prayer with me as we look at scripture this morning? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, uh, we pray that you would just open our hearts and our minds right now. In the midst of all the things that are going on in the world, um, we pray for your healing. We pray for your presence with those who are mourning. We pray for, um, God, your compassion and your kindness to come through the people who are first responders, the counselors, the pastors, the folks who are supporting communities who are suffering because of violence done this last week. Uh, we pray that in the midst of really terrible circumstances, the name of Jesus would be lifted up and people would see how you work through uh, your followers to bring love and healing and compassion and sympathy to those who mourn. We pray in this conversation this morning that you just help us to hear what you want to say to us. Uh, help us not to feel defensive, but to be open to whatever word you want to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're continuing a conversation on God's law that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And one way to think about God's law is God's pattern for living, the way that God wants us to live with each other and in relationship with God and the world that we're in. And the book of Leviticus, which we've been looking at, and also uh, other books in the first five books of the, of the Torah, give a lot of guidelines on how it is that God wants God's people to live in the world. And so today we're going to take a look at a specific passage that talks about what we do as God's people when we've done something wrong to someone else, particularly to a neighbor. How do we become peacemakers when we've done something wrong to someone else? How do we make that wrong thing right? So we're going to look at a passage. As I was thinking about this text for today, a story came to mind from my childhood where my dad and I are playing baseball in the backyard of our home. And probably because I wasn't particularly good at baseball, I throw the ball clear over my dad's head and it bounces right through the neighbor's window. And I don't remember how old I was, probably like 10 or something, 10, 11 years old. And I remember just hearing that crash and seeing the ball go through the window. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm in so much trouble. That's not good, right? And as an instinct, you know, you could kind of feel this. You just want to run away, right? You just want to pretend that it didn't happen and hope that somehow it gets fixed and you don't get in trouble. That's a natural, maybe kid instinct in a situation like that. But my dad took this teaching opportunity, parenting moment to teach me, like, how do you, what do you do when you've done something wrong and it's impacted somebody else? So he came over and he said, okay, like your next step is you have to go ring the doorbell at the neighbor's house. I can go with you. And you have to explain to them what happened, what you did, and say you're sorry, and then offer to pay for the window. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that sounds hard, but okay. And then, you know, 10, 11 year old brain just thinking like, how in the world am I going to pay? How many allowances is it going to cost me to, to pay for this window, you know? So go over to the, the neighbor's house, explain what happened. Of course, they're not happy about it and say, I'm really sorry it was an accident and we'll 
we'll fix the window. My dad says we're going to fix the window. So uh, we'll start working on that right away. Um, this is an incredibly valuable lesson at an early age. Like when you do something wrong and it affects somebody else, how do you take responsibility for that and not just apologize, you know, don't just go over there and say you're sorry, but try to make it right if you can. You know, fix the window. You broke the window, say you're sorry, and fix the window. So when you think about your own life um, and the way that maybe God has led you in situations like this, you know, like how, how do you think God wants you to make wrong things right in your own life? You think about your own relationships and we all do this. Everybody makes mistakes and does things that impact other people in negative ways. How is it that God wants us to be peacemakers in the midst of those situations where we specifically have responsibility, where we've done something wrong that has impacted somebody else? Do we apologize for those things? Do we run away, pretend they didn't happen? Do we try to justify our actions so we don't need to be held responsible? Do we stand up and raise our hands and say, I, uh, this was my fault and I'm going to do everything I can to make it right? You know, how, what's been your own instinct and your own responses to those periods in your life when this has happened to you? Uh, maybe try to recall a story like that as we're talking this morning. I want to ask this larger question also to say, how, how do we become people as a community, as a church, who God can use to make wrong things right? That God can help us see where things have been done wrong to other people and how we might be able to become peacemakers in ways that, that help make these wrong things right again. So here's where this shows up in the, in the law, in the Old Testament law, in Leviticus chapter 6, when God is speaking through Moses to God's people, trying to train them on what they should do when these kinds of things happen in their lives. So here's what it says in Leviticus 6, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor about something entrusted to them or left in their care or about something stolen or if they cheat their neighbor or if they find lost property and lie about it or if they swear falsely about any such sin that people may commit. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or what was entrusted to them, or the lost property they found, or whatever it was that they swore falsely about, they must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it all to the owner on the day they present their guilt offering. And as a penalty, they must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, their guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them before the Lord, and they will be forgiven for any of the things they did that made them guilty. And so these are pretty specific instances that this law is calling out, right? It says, if you've deceived your neighbor, if you've stolen from your neighbor, if you cheated your neighbor out of anything, if you've lied about lost property that you suddenly found, uh, in your possession, if you've covered up something that somebody else did to their neighbor and taken something away from them, there's kind of this long list of different ways that you could have wronged your neighbor, right? Then God's law says, here are the ways in which you go about making that wrong thing right. Um, this idea of restitution is called out here 
in Scripture. It says to make restitution in full means that you give a person back anything that was taken away from them. And in this instance, add a fifth to whatever that was. You know, add 20% of whatever you cost the neighbor to make up for the wrong that was done to them. So they get, you know, the full window back plus another 20% of the, of the cost of that window, to use my example from earlier. Restitution just means that we're restoring to the rightful owner something that has been taken from them or that they lost and um, was taken away from them in a way that wasn't right. So there's these kind of three major steps that we see outlined in Leviticus 6 for these instances when you've done something wrong to somebody else. First, admit, you know, recognize that you are guilty, that you've done something wrong and it's impacted somebody else. Secondly, that you have to try to make it right, that you have to pay it back, plus 20%, Leviticus 6 says. And then finally, at the end here, it talks about this guilt offering, that you bring an offering to God. Not only do you repair and restore your neighbor, but you also offer something to God as um, acknowledgement of your own guilt and, and a request for forgiveness from God for the thing that you've done. And then this last line is, is so great, right? It talks about how people who follow this pattern admit that they were wrong, make the wrong thing right with their neighbor, ask God for forgiveness with this offering, that they will be forgiven for any of the things that they did that made them guilty. There's closure here. The neighbor is made whole. The person who is guilty is free from their guilt. And shalom, God's peace, is restored in this relationship and in this situation. There are lots of other examples of this sort of pattern in Scripture. A few of them that I found. Uh, one in Numbers 5, it's very similar, talking about stealing things or taking things away from neighbors and how to make that right. Uh, one in Exodus 22 that says if you steal a sheep and sell it or, or eat it, then you owe four sheep back, not just 20% more sheep, but you actually owe four for the price of one um, in that particular instance. It highlights in a number of places in God's law how important it is to God that people are made whole when someone is wronged. Let me say that again. It's really important to God that people are made whole when someone is wronged. It's really important to God that we don't just apologize for the things that we've done wrong, but to do whatever we can to make that thing right, if possible. So if we fast forward to Jesus' ministry, there's a place that we see this working out in real life very clearly. Jesus is... Um, preparing to go to Jerusalem. This is the Palm Sunday that we're celebrating today, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in this story I'm about to retell for you. In Luke chapter 19, he's heading towards, uh, towards Jerusalem where he's going to ride into town on this donkey as, as a peacemaker, as a king, right? Someone who's going to make peace, but in a very nonviolent way by giving up his own life for the sake of others, to cleanse the people from their guilt that's weighing them down. And as he's on his way, he runs into this gentleman named Zacchaeus. Some of you maybe know the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. And in that local time, the tax collector meant that you would go around to your neighbors. Think of how awful this job is. You have to go around to your neighbors and collect taxes that they owe to the Roman Empire that they probably don't want to pay, maybe don't feel like they can afford to pay. But that's your job. You've been given authority from the Romans to collect taxes from your neighbors. Tough gig. 
Now, Zacchaeus has used this position to not just collect the taxes from his neighbors, but to add a percentage on top of what he was required to take for the Roman Empire for himself. So he gets a cut out of every transaction from his neighbors. So this guy has made his living ripping off his neighbors. So you can imagine that he is not a popular person in his town. Something is going on in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus is unsettled. He's trying to make meaning out of his life. He must not be able to do it because when he hears that Jesus the rabbi is coming to town, he decides, I have to see this person. I have to find out what this guy is really about. And the text tells us that Zacchaeus is not a very tall person, so when Jesus is coming into town, there's crowds, he can't get to him. he decides to climb this tree. Now imagine the scene when Jesus is walking in his town, and there's all these people around who are all clamoring for his attention, and he looks up in the tree, and he picks the, this guy out, who's probably universally hated by everyone else in the town. And he says, Zacchaeus. Everyone's like, seriously? Of all the people that Jesus could address personally, he chooses Zacchaeus? You gotta be kidding me. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house for lunch, for dinner, for whatever meal it was. Get ready, because I'm, I'm gonna be a guest at your house. So of course, Zacchaeus scrambles down from the tree and goes back to his home and, and hosts Jesus. And people are probably chattering about how Jesus could possibly enter the home of this guy that's so terrible. And they have some discussion. I would guess that something like this text in Leviticus comes up in their discussion as Jesus reminds this person, you know, if you've wronged anybody, here's the way to make it right. And as we look in Luke chapter 19, if you want to take a look at the story, you see that Zacchaeus' response is very profound from this meeting with Jesus, right? He is transformed by this meal that he has with Jesus from a person who's made their whole living taking money from their neighbors to somebody who says, stands up and says in verse 8, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, which he has, quite a few people, if not everybody, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Four sheep for one sheep. And Jesus replies, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham, and the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So, this is a little different scenario in that Jesus, Jesus' presence and connection and relationship with Zacchaeus helped Zacchaeus realize that God loved him. That he didn't have to be this hated person in the community, that he didn't have to make a living stealing from his neighbors, that there was a different way of life and a different way to connect to God through the mercy and grace and relationship with Jesus that he experienced that day. And it transformed his life. Collecting and hoarding the money that he was hoarding was no longer important to him. In fact, he saw it as a privilege to be able to support the needs of the poor and also to make the wrong things right with the people that he had taken money from, that he shouldn't have taken money from, in his own community. Jesus, the presence of Jesus, and the forgiveness that comes from knowing Jesus and being connected to Jesus 
is how we receive forgiveness for our sins right now. We don't have to make guilt offerings anymore like they describe in Leviticus 6. We can go to Jesus with the things that we've done wrong and ask for forgiveness and he promises to forgive us. But that's not where things can end if we want to be peacemakers. It isn't just enough to ask Jesus for forgiveness. We need to have responses like Zacchaeus shows here. I feel forgiven and therefore I'm going to go out and do everything I can to make any wrong that I've committed right and to support the things that God cares the most about. We now are compelled by love, by mercy, by forgiveness in relationship with Jesus, motivated by God's grace in our lives to do the same for other people. We don't have to be motivated by guilt or duty or shame to make the wrong things right. We're motivated by God's love, love that we have experienced personally. Amen? So we're learning in this uh, series of texts today that one of the ways that God makes wrong things right, which we talk a lot about at Mill City Church, that God wants to bring God's kingdom and make wrong things right. Well, how does that actually happen? That God wants to make wrong things right through us. So what does that look like? What does that look like in our everyday lives? When's the last time that you had to go to somebody who you know you've, you wronged in some way and say, I'm sorry, and how can I make this up to you? It's a great question that Pastor Stephanie came up with when she and I were talking about this sermon. What, when have you had to go to someone and say, I'm sorry, I said that wrong, or I did this to you? How can I make that up to you? And to become a peacemaker in your personal, individual interactions. What if one of the things that God's calling us to do in this really tricky challenging time of life is to keep an eye on the people around us and see if there are ways that we have wronged somebody are there ways that the spirit of god can help us to ask forgiveness from god but also ask forgiveness from others and try to be peacemakers people who make the wrong things right maybe just take a minute um, take a few seconds right now and ask god to to remind you of anybody in your life that you think you know what Maybe I have done something that really hurt this other person or wronged them or did something that negatively impacted them in some way. Take a few seconds and just reflect on your last week, your last month, anything that you've been doing with coworkers, friends, family. Um, is there anything that the Holy Spirit will bring up in you? If not, that's okay. But sometimes when you pause and just give God space, God will remind you, yeah. There's this thing out there that really you need to deal with and try to make peace and make the wrong things right. So let me give you just a few seconds to, to think together and let God speak to you if that's what God wants to do. So that's the personal application part of this, right? There might be people in our lives that we've wronged that we can ask God for forgiveness for and, and we can ask them and, and make the wrong thing right. But I also want to talk to you about a trickier topic, which is times when we're part of systems in our lives that maybe the system itself has wronged a person or wronged a whole group of people. 
So I want to just ask this question. I, I know that this has some political controversy associated with it, but hang in there with me and just try to be open to the questions. Are there ways that the systems that we're part of have wronged our neighbors or wronged our coworkers, wronged our friends, maybe wronged us, anybody else? Are there ways that we're working together and living together that just make life inherently much more difficult for certain groups of people? This is an important conversation right now in light of all of our conversations about racial justice and equality and all the other pieces that come with the important conversations we've been having. I'm trying to think of examples here. You know, think about companies that you're associated with. Is there any way the place that you work, whether it's large or small or whatever, um, has wronged people, customers or suppliers or people that make the things that you sell? Is there any way that the company has maybe made life unnecessarily harder for certain people? And is there any way that God might call us to be peacemakers, to make those wrong things right? I recognize that most of us don't feel like we have much control over those things, but it's a question I think we need to be open to. Or think about ways in which you buy certain products and who you buy the products from. Is there any way in which the companies that you regularly buy things from make life hard for someone else, or wrong people, or oppress people, or, um, you know, create products by underpaying people dramatically in different countries that make their life mostly miserable. Like, is that a system that we're part of? Maybe we're not even aware that we're part of. Um, and is there any way that God wants us to be peacemakers and make wrong things right in some of those examples? You know, are there economic systems that we're part of that are inherently unjust? Lots of people think that there are. You know, one of the stats that I looked at this last week just this data from 2019 suggested that in the United States, on average, black families have one-eighth of the net worth, financial, financial net worth, of the average white family. That means the average white family has eight times as much net worth as the average black family. Um, not to mention the average native family or Hispanic family or any other person of color group that we might look at. You know, there's been an economic system that's privileged white families. And it's really hard to, to wrestle with that because in our culture, cultures of the United States, we're highly individualistic and we tend to think, you know, I didn't do anything wrong to these people or like I didn't try to hurt anybody by the way that I was pursuing a job or pursuing an education or making money that I make and working for the company that I work for. And I, I know that's true. And yet, there are these systemic injustices that exist around us. So without being immediately defensive, is there a way that we can be open to say, like, yeah, there's, there's some ways in which these economic systems have made life not fair for certain people. And then what can we do about it? Is there a way that we can make those wrong things right? Is there a way that we can make a restitution and give back to people things that have been taken from them? From 1985 to 2000, in another study that I read this week, it said that 66% of black families had kids who grew up in poverty compared to roughly 6% of white kids that grew up in poverty. I've done lots of work in schools and know that there's a lot of schools in certain economic areas, underprivileged areas, where the school quality of the school education is not the same as it is in other places. I've noticed this week in a system that I love, the NCAA March Madness, there, the men's tournament is 
way better funded and resourced than the women's tournament. Where are the spaces in our lives where systems make things inherently unfair for other people and even worse than that, sometimes oppressing people and, and making it impossible for them to be successful and to take the steps and opportunities that they want to take. So here's a question that I want us to wrestle with. How might God be inviting the church to make wrong things right in both personal and systemic ways? You know, it's easy to think that we need to take responsibility when we throw a baseball through somebody's window, right? You, you have to say you're sorry and you gotta fix the window if you can. Um, but the systemic conversation's a little bit harder. And I wanna suggest that we just have to start by being open to it. Instead of being super defensive and wanna reach for the argument that we didn't do it or we weren't responsible, to just say yes. It seems that the systems that we're part of often make life really hard for certain people and even wrong or oppress certain people and that's not who we wanna be as Christians. We want the church to take the lead. We want the church to be doing right because we're compelled by love, not because we're forced to do it, right? I've come across these examples of uh, Zacchaeus projects that different congregations and Christians have started in different places where they're pooling resources and money and saying, let's together make a collective difference in the lives of people who've been negatively impacted by certain systems. Stephanie referred me to a book called Dear White Peacemakers, written by Pastor Ashita Moore, who teaches at uh, Woodland Hills Church. She has a, a chapter on this idea of reparations and restitution, this just idea of like giving back to people things that have been taken from them. And she says that, uh, to quote her, peacemakers, we cannot be afraid of the conversations and begin to cultivate small practices of reparations, you know, giving things back to people from whom they've been taken. Two and four, especially people of color in your lives. And at the end of the day, this is an integrity issue for us, that whom we love and where we're putting our security. To trust God, to trust God's grace and forgiveness for us and to act out of that love and say, yes, we want to be peacemakers. We want to make wrong things right in the world. Not because we have to, because we get to and because we're following Jesus. The person who, after the story with Zacchaeus, is about to ride into a city, not because he has to, but because he wants to. Because he loves us. He hasn't done a thing wrong. He doesn't owe anything to anybody. But he's willing to give up his own life to ride into the city and to weep over it because he knows that people don't recognize the gift that God is giving them. We don't have to do anything that I've said today to earn God's love. That's not what this is about. It's about us taking the next step and being challenged to live out God's law through the love of Jesus Christ, where free and forgiven people look for ways that we can be peacemakers, both personally and systemically, in ways that show God's love, that witness to the power of Jesus Christ in the communities that we work and live in every day. Let's continue to rebuild the reputation of the church by asking some of these hard questions and taking small steps towards living into God's will and God's love for other people and making wrong things right. Let's pray together. Jesus, sometimes you challenge us with, with hard things and hard teaching. And I pray that in this moment right now that everyone will feel the love and the compassion and the unconditional acceptance that you offer to us. And also 
that you would help us to not be defensive, but to hear and listen to the voice of your spirit in our lives to help us see the places in the world that really are wrong, that even we've personally contributed to or the systems we're part of have contributed to. And God, help us to be free to follow your spirit and see small ways that we can start making wrong things right in the lives of people, to be the peacemakers that you, Jesus, are already, that we might be followers of yours in this way. Thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy and your consistent invitation into the work that you're doing in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.